0: The gun goes off it's the beginning of a race the runners surge forward as they cross the starting line arms pumping legs pumping filled with adrenaline the race has begun if you've ever been a runner in a race especially long distance you know the feeling for the first few seconds the runners vie for position with a burst of speed, and then they gradually settle into a steady pace for the long haul. If it's running the mile, the first lap goes by, you're still feeling pretty good. You're loosening up. The nervousness is gone, and the the waiting for the start is now gone. Your breathing is steady and methodical. You finish the first lap. You finish the second lap. Then the third lap. By this time you're halfway done and you start to feel the strain. Your lungs are burning. Your body's craving oxygen. Does this bring back memories if you've ever been in a race? Your legs start to feel like lead weights. Your hands feel heavy like you're you're swinging lead weights as well and there are inevitable moments, flashes of can I keep this up? Can I keep going? What if I can't go any further? And you will yourself to not stop. Don't stop. Just one more step. Just one more step. And then the gun sounds again, the beginning of the last lap. Only one lap from the finish line. There's another surge of adrenaline. By now, though, you're really feeling it. Your legs are tired. Your arms are tired. Your feet are burning. And yet you have to dig deeper to keep going. You have to make it to the finish line. Brethren, we are in a race. It's called our Christian race, our spiritual walk. If we have been called as Christians and accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if we've been baptized and begotten by His Spirit, we've started on a path. It might be one month ago, or one year ago, or one decade ago, or more. But we are running a race. The question is, will you make it to your finish line? Will we all make it to the finish line? I'd like to talk about that today, on this holy day, this very special holy day, the Feast of Trumpets. As we are gathered together, I'd like to talk about The finish line. The finish line. Now, what does our race and the finish line have to do with the Feast of Trumpets today? Well, let's see. Let's go back to Leviticus, and we get a little background on this day and on all the feasts in general. If we turn back to Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 23, And begin in verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then he begins to explain One by one, the holy days. First Passover, verse 5, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So, of course, this symbolizes Jesus Christ giving His life for all mankind. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And uh, certainly this observance back there uh, in Exodus was a type of Him coming and being crucified for our sins Next, the days of unleavened bread, verse 6. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. To the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. These are the days when we remove leaven out of our homes because leaven represents sin. And we think about de-leavening as a type of our lifetime effort of getting sin out of our lives, of learning to be like Jesus Christ, learning to have Him live His life in us. Verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So next is the Feast of Pentecost, representing the first fruit church, receiving his spirit, growing, preparing to rule with him. Then we come to the fall holy days. Verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. The Feast of Trumpets, representing Christ's return at the end of the age, God's dramatic intervention in world affairs, and the coinciding resurrection of the saints. That's what we're observing today. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. But very very quickly, first, summarizing the others, verse 27, also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the Day of Atonement symbolizes the time after Christ's return, When Satan the devil is put away, is chained, is taken away from humanity for a thousand years. And of course, which makes possible the the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 33, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And what a wonderful observance that is, as we keep, when we go to the Feast, Picturing the thousand years of Christ's direct reign on earth, and what a, a wonderful message that is that we hear throughout the whole Feast of Tabernacles about a different world, so different from today. And then, of course, the eighth day of the last, uh, eighth day of the feast, rather the last great day, pictures the great general resurrection when all of humanity, the rest of humanity, will learn what we are learning now. That's called the Great White Throne Judgment Period. So together, all of these holy days picture the great span of time in God's plan of salvation for all mankind. So what is the significance of the day we are keeping now, the Feast of Trumpets? Well, when we look into the future, there are some amazing things that will all come together when this day is fulfilled. And in one sense, it signals a finish line. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, verse, verse 13. Paul writes, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Wow! A a total change in our life. A time when if we have died by then, that this trumpet blast signals our resurrection. And if we are still alive, it will... Signal that an instantaneous change when, when we are changed into spirit beings and we rise to meet Christ in the air. You might call it reverse skydiving. And what a thrill that will be. What an amazing event. Brethren, what we're talking about is the finish line. The finish line. The end of all of our toil and, and pain and travail and difficulty in this life. The end of our struggles with the flesh, with striving against sin. What he just described is our finish line. If you've ever been in a race, again, you know what it feels like to cross that line. You're exhausted, you're spent, you're wiped out, but you're exhilarated. You did it, you made it, you finished. There's no feeling in the world like accomplishing something that took everything you had to do it. Proverbs talking about that. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Brethren, one of these days, we are going to cross the most important goal in our life, the most important finish line in our life, and how sweet that will taste. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that there's nothing to do after that. I'm not saying that the finish line is it, and and then there's nothing after that point, or that we're just trying to get into the kingdom for ourselves, or that it's it's all about just getting to that point. Rather, we make that goal. We cross that line so we can be at God's kingdom, be part of the team, and the family to reign here on earth, to bring about the change that we will hear about at the feast of tabernacles, to bring peace to the whole world so we can serve and and help and live with God and His family together forever. But brethren, unless we first cross that finish line, we won't be there. We will just not be there unless we make it to that line. The rest doesn't matter. All the things we talk about at the Feast, the Millennium, all the things we think about and get excited about, that all comes after we've hit our goal of crossing the line. So we've got to get there first, don't we? Actually, the Feast of Trumpets can do a lot in focusing us on that goal and inspiring us to make it. You know, Paul is even more specific in 1 Corinthians in explaining when this happens and, and uh, how this will happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's not just a trumpet blown at that uh, at the resurrection, but it's a very specific trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse uh, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So which is the last trumpet? Well... That means there will be other trumpets as well, and we'll see that in a moment. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory." Paul is talking about winning. He's talking about victory. And he said, at that moment is when we win. God wants us to be winners. He wants us to finish our race. And this day is about winning. Brethren, how focused on that are we? You know, if, if we're not focused on the finish line, how can we run the race well If we're talking again about running a a physical race, especially a long-distance race where a lot of endurance is is needed and and it's very grueling and how important it is to not give up, focusing on crossing the finish line is crucial. Think for a moment. If you were in a race uh, without a finish line, uh, how would that work? Imagine... Uh, all the the runners starting at the starting line, uh, poised to begin, they've all stretched and they've all warmed up and they've got their numbers pinned on their shirts and they're pumped full of adrenaline, they're ready to go and the starter says, okay, when I fire this gun, you take off? And uh, they ask, well, where's the finish line? And the starter says, well, there is no finish line, just start running. Well, that wouldn't make any sense at all, right? If you don't know where the finish line is, how do you know where to run? How do you know how far to run? How do you know how to mentally prepare yourself for crossing that line? Brethren, we don't know how long we'll have to persevere or all the twists and turns that will occur on our way before getting there. But Jesus Christ does want us to visualize and mentally see the finish line so we can focus on it, we can grab onto it so we can make sure we cross it and we don't flag or fail before that time. Notice in Luke chapter 14. Actually, he says before we even start the race, we've got to powerfully imagine the finish or else we're not going to make it. Luke chapter 14 and verse... Verse 25, he said, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, in other words, if they're not willing to put those things subjugated under their focus on obeying him, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus Christ is saying, I want you to cross that finish line. I want you to make it. But before you even start, understand clearly, this race is going to take everything you've got. You're going to have to push, you're going to have to dig deep, your legs are going to burn, your arms are going to hurt, your lungs will feel like bursting, but you can do it. And I will help you. That's counting the cost to make sure we finish no matter what it takes. That's our commitment. You know, even authors today see the wisdom in visualizing the finish line to be successful. Stephen Covey wrote some years ago in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, under the heading, Begin with the End in Mind. He said this, To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. It's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap, in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. How different our lives are when we really know what is deeply important to us In keeping that picture in mind, we manage ourselves each day to be and to do what really matters most. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. We may be very busy, we may be very efficient, but we will also be truly effective only when we begin with the end in mind. So on the day of trumpets, I think it's good to pause and think about where we're going. Because this day symbolizes the time when we get there. And we can focus on that. I think this is especially important when we are dealing with trials. As many of us in the church of God are dealing with trials. Those out in the world are as well. But certainly God's people are not immune to suffering from trials and difficulties. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, you know, Satan is surely active in, in his grinding many of us with grievous trials. How do we make it? How do we hang in there? How can we keep putting one foot in front of the other? Well, this day is part of the solution of... Keep on, Keeping our eyes focused on that goal. First Peter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's saying, steal yourself for the race. Set your mind on the finish line as Christ suffered So we're going to suffer as well. But we can make it. Verse 7, he says, "...but the end of all things is at hand." He's saying, you know, more than ever, we're close to the end. We're not that far away from the finish line. You know, Mr. Armstrong years ago was ridiculed sometimes for saying that we're in the gun lap. And uh, yet when you look at the span of time since the early church... Uh, certainly, Paul felt he was in the gun lap. He talked about it. Uh, we see references to uh, this, the New Testament writers saying we are in the the end times already. Uh, certainly, the latter half of the 20th century was the gun lap. When you, when you look at the vast span of time, and we're even closer now. Things are happening around us all the time that are setting the stage for some pretty dramatic events. He says, Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You notice where the focus is. Paul is saying, be patient, be steady, just keep going, so that when He returns, when His glory is revealed, we will be there. We find this over and over, a clear and absolute, zeroed in focus on that moment. Christ's return, the change of the saints. Really, a pivot point in end-time events. We need the vision to see that clearly and drive for it, especially when we're in trials and difficulties. You know, we we rehearse some pretty difficult things on the day of trumpets. Some things that are going to happen before the finish line comes. And we're going to need perseverance. We're going to need strength and courage and vision to finish our race because some pretty difficult things are going to happen. Let's let's look at a few and review a a few of these things. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. God gives us a picture for our comfort, for our encouragement, and also as a warning about these things coming. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four Thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the apostle John seeing this incredible vision of the throne of God uh, leading up to what was going to happen. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written be inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So now we see introduce the seven seals, which lead into the seven trumpets. It says in Revelation chapter six, in verse one Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud with a voice like thunder, Come and see. <clears throat> so now John begins to see what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What are these horsemen, and what do they represent? He opens the first seal, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. He sees a conqueror on a white horse. Some mistake this as being Jesus Christ, because later on Christ comes on a white horse, But there's a difference. Uh, Later on, Jesus is shown coming from heaven with the name Faithful and True, making war in righteousness, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword to smite the nations. But this imposter is none of these things. What John was seeing was a growing religious system masquerading as a Savior, the man on the white horse, but who would actually bring deception and destruction. Uh, an impostor masquerading as the representative of Jesus Christ. He would be in league with the next horseman. Verse 3, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, came out, <clears throat> and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So the second horseman comes, and this horse is red, uh, symbolizing war. As we read in Matthew 24, we read of wars and rumors of wars, regional wars, great world wars, leading up to, to horrific destruction at the final resurrection of this beast power. So we see the false prophet, and we see the beast. One a religious conqueror, and one a military conqueror. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard her voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. What does this mean? Well, the marginal reference explains that a denarius is one day's wage, so it's talking about seeing. John was seeing hyperinflation. The re- result of, of these conquerors and, and uh, warfare and strife, food becomes scarce. And yet, as our booklet brings out, the revelation, the mystery unveiled, it's not talking about yet the whole collapse of society because expensive things are still available uh, for the wealthy, the, the wine and the oil is still available for those who are who are not on the edge of poverty, uh, while many others are going hungry. You know, we are getting a, a tiny taste of this in some respects in many places around the world, a precursor of sorts. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of people uh, living in refugee camps all over the world that were meant to be temporary but have been become permanent. Uh, some have lived their their whole lives in refugee camps, whole generations being born, and that's all they know, have never known anything else. John is, is showing and what was revealed to him that things are going to get worse before they get better. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and hunger and death and by the beasts of the earth. Warfare and strife leading to hunger and scarcity of food, which leads to disease and malnutrition and death. What this is saying, that this growing power, this league between church and state, will have sway over a portion of the earth, uh, one quarter of the earth, it says. And this is going to be the result of their reign, a very evil reign. Not reigning in righteousness for the good of the people that they are governing, but rather really reigning in cruelty. And it doesn't stop there either. Verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So what we're looking at is the tribulation. Uh, when these co-leaders turned their anger on modern Israel, and of course, even some in in the church, as we understand. Jeremiah chapter thirty, I'll just read it. Uh, well, let's go ahead and and, and turn over there. If you, we'll come back to Revelation in a moment, uh, but Jeremiah chapter uh, chapter thirty and verse one, we get a little bit of a a picture of of this as well of the tribulation. Jeremiah. Chapter 30, and verse 1. I'll get a drink of water here. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Well, Israel never came back from the first captivity. So this has to be referring to a future time. It's really kind of hard to imagine a nation of over 300 million people, the United States, taken into captivity and other Israelite nations. It's hard to fathom that. But this is what is prophesied. This is what's coming. Like nothing that's ever happened before, verse 4. Now these are the words of the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, "We have heard a voice of trembling of fear and of not not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. No day like it in history. <clears throat> this is echoed in Matthew 24, the worst time of trouble ever, even up to that point or uh, from, from from that point onward. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up to them. So David's going to be resurrected. He's going to be raised up. That's the finish line that we talked about. But before that, Israel will be punished for her sins. And of course... Also, an intense persecution on on the church, a time of enforced allegiance to apostate religious systems. And when anyone keeping God's laws, his Sabbath, his holy days, uh, unless they are supernaturally protected by God, may may have to give up their lives uh, to, to obey him. Let's turn back to Revelation. Let's turn back to Revelation chapter 12. But thankfully, God does promise uh, protection by and large uh, for those who are zealous and faithful to Him. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. We're getting closer to the finish line, he's saying, which is our victory in his defeat, and Satan will know it, And he's going to get more angry as we get closer. Verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, the woman symbolizes the true church, protected in a remote place, For three and a half years during the tribulation. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Again, this is apparently an army of some sort. Remember the white horse and the red horse are still riding at this time. Verse 16, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In the coming days, it's not enough to just keep the commandments and believe in Jesus. The Scripture shows that. Not if we want to be protected from really hard times. There's something deeper. And, of course, if we have eyes to see it, that 's what God is telling us it, it, it's we need to be fully functioning in his His church and his work. We need to be preparing for our role in His kingdom zealously, not just keeping the commandments, not just having faith in in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We need to be conforming every every bit of our lives to His will and following His will and changing and, and growing. We need to be philadelphians we need to to Take the admonition uh, that is given to Laodicea, and we need to be true Philadelphians. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 9. Here is another part of the prophecy talking about God punishing the houses of Israel and Judah for their their sins. But notice, before He does that, there's something very interesting that happens. Ezekiel chapter 9. And uh, and verse one, he says, then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a battle ax in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's ink horn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of, of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where It had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, "'Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it.' To the others he said in my hearing, "'Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have pity.' Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone, anyone on whom is the mark. And began at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple, putting a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry for the abominations done in Israel. Brethren, are we fence-setters? Do we have one foot in the church and one foot out? Are we really letting go of ourselves and really changing and growing? Are we really letting God cleanse us of sin? How can we sigh and cry for the sins done in our nations if we hold on to it ourselves? Well, we can't. We find in Revelation an echo of this. In chapter 7, there is a pause as the 144,000 are sealed, protecting them from harm. <clears throat> so we see some very dangerous times ahead, and yet we also see for those who are zealous and faithful and really giving their lives to God now, we see also phys- physical protection in the future. Let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. The five seals had been opened up, and that leads to dramatic signs in the heavens, Revelation chapter 6, and verse 12. It says, And I looked, and he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Just some incredibly... Uh, powerful things happening, and dramatic things happening. And yet, verse 15, and and this is the response, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know, the science fiction movies try to portray uh, people going into bunkers uh, in kind of an end-time calamity, but this is really going to happen. And hiding in the ground and caves because of these things. Luke chapter 21 and verse 25, let's just briefly go over there. Hold your place again in Revelation. Luke chapter 21 and... uh, in verse 25, we read to what Christ had told His disciples many years before, before Revelation was written. Luke 21, 25, "...there will be signs in the sun in the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity in the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken." Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When these things begin to happen, he's saying, when you're in the middle of it and you're not yet finished, you're not yet there at the finish line, but you know it's coming, he's saying keep your chin up, the finish line is not far off, you're on the home stretch, keep on trucking, Uh, You're almost there. Don't stop. There's a lot of encouragement, actually, in this day. God doesn't want to punish the world. These things will come on the world as a result of sins. But God will use these things as a way to prepare the way for His Son to return to the earth and finally reign supreme on earth. And for us, for God's people, if, if we are patient... And if we are persevering, we'll make it all the way to the end. And, and God will use us even as a, as a generation that can testify to the last uh, generation right at the end, if we are willing. Verse 12, But before all things, uh, Jesus Christ again saying in Luke 21, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will be lost by your patience. Possess you your souls. God's strength pervades and persists throughout. That's the lesson. And He will help us to finish our race. He will hold us up and sustain us and even put the words in our mouth of knowing what to say as times get harder for a testimony, perhaps. Let's go back to Revelation. The last thing we read was Revelation six seventeen, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the heavenly signs signal the day of the Lord, the opening of the seventh seal. One day represents one year. And so uh, that's why it appears that now this signal this signals the final year within that three and a half year span. Of the tribulation, the day of the Lord being the final year within that three and a half year span. Let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Mr. O'Gwynn points out in the booklet, on Revelation, that this final year, the day of the Lord, probably begins and ends on the Feast of Trumpets, on this day we're observing today. Uh, So that means, again, the seventh seal would be opened on this day, perhaps sometime in our near future. The seventh seal also introduces the seven trumpets of Revelation. Uh, Verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. A hailstorm like nothing we've ever seen in our time. Perhaps similar to what happened to the Egyptians hail and fire which destroyed their crops, but this time on a global scale, it's, again, hard to imagine uh, 30% of the vegetation gone. Verse 8, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with, with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Uh, massive, calamity in the oceans perhaps a massive uh, volcanic reaction a third of the sea altered in color again reminiscent of egypt and a third of the strips of the ships destroyed perhaps by a tsunami we've seen how destructive they can be in recent times uh, this, this is a horrible de- catastrophe talking about thousands and thousands of ships being destroyed You know, when we had the attacks on the Twin Towers uh, in the United States back in 2001, and it disrupted air traffic for a few days, it had a huge effect on our economy. What effect will this have when thousands of ships, perhaps, are wiped out? Not pleasant. Not pleasant. But it is, again, God is softening up mankind to repent. Repent. And yet mankind will continue to, many of mankind will not repent. Next, verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, woe, woe, to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Revelation 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star uh, fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So the same system we described earlier, the beast power in league with the false prophet. But this seems to signal a a renewed battle for supremacy over the earth with perhaps chemical or biological weapons of of kinds that we have not seen yet. Verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill men but to torment them for five months. You can read and compare with Daniel 11, uh, talking about the conflict between the, um, also between the king of the north and the king of the south at, at, the, at the end time. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 13. Then the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the six angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, God always does things on time, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was two hundred million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. It's hard to fathom, really, what is going to happen in this nuclear exchange, apparently, The thing that men have feared the most since World War II, a massive nuclear war and fallout, worst case scenario, a third of humanity dead. Not just thousands, not just millions, but perhaps two billion people. You know, this is the result of sin. This is the result of Satan's way of life. Two million people. This is what Jesus Christ prophesied would happen after the sixth trumpet sounds. Now again, remember, we're waiting for the seventh trumpet. That's the last trumpet. That's the finish line. But these are the things that will happen as we get closer to that finish line. Truly awful things. As a result of man's stubbornness and sin. And yet, after all of this, it's hard to imagine, but there are still some who will not repent. Verse 20, But the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Inconceivable. But millions and millions of people will still stubbornly hang on to their way, their carnal way, and refuse to submit to God. You know, it's interesting It's not that they won't have a witness. Because we read about the two witnesses who will be prophesying. And it will be very public. And their ministry will be understood, uh, apparently broadcast, uh, for all to see. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 11 to get a, a glimpse of that. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 4 <clears throat> it says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the god of the earth and if anyone wants to harm them these are two witnesses fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies and if anyone wants to harm them he must be killed in this manner these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So as all of these things are happening, there will be a witness. There will be someone who is explaining why these things are happening. And yet they will begin to see these witnesses as the enemy instead of someone who is telling them the truth. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that descends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. And overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Apparently this will not be done in a corner. It will not be a private thing. It will be broadcast and and understood by people from all over the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So this brings us to the seventh trumpet. Now let me read from the book, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled. This is on page 33. Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled, our our booklet. Under the heading, The Last Trumpet Sounds, he writes, We now come to the midpoint of the book of Revelation and the defining moment of end-time events. Isn't that interesting? All that we have been talking about... As we've been talking about the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, is the defining moment of end time events. It's our finish line. It's the time of the saints entering glory. It's our race finished. But isn't it interesting that it's only halfway through the book of Revelation? It's our finish line, but there will be much to do after we cross that line. He says this, What exactly happens when the seventh and final trumpet blast is sounded? Revelation eleven fifteen states, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. According to verse 18, this final trumpet blast signals the time when the final wrath of God will be poured out, and when God will begin to judge the dead and give reward to His true servants. It is a time when the dead in Christ along with those Christians still alive on earth will undergo an instantaneous change from mortal to immortal and death will be completely swallowed up in victory. It is called the first resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 6 and those who are part of it are called blessed and holy. They need never worry about death again but will rule and reign under Christ himself as he establishes his thousand year reign on the earth. This is apparently uh, taking place on the Feast of Trumpets. When you and I, if we are faithful all the way to the end, go through a change that we've never experienced before, we become like God. We receive spirit beings. Never to hurt or grow tired or feel pain again. Can you imagine that? On this day, that's... That's the vision, that's the hope. And from then on, we can see God and Christ face to face. In fact, later in the book, it talks about the saints standing before God's throne, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. All the trials, all the tests, all the waiting, all the tears, it will all have been worth it. All the struggles, all the striving against sin... And think of all the people we will see there at that moment, at that pivotal moment in end-time events. Of course, the heroes of the Bible, David and Paul and Moses and Elijah, we will meet them. They are real people that we will embrace and talk to. We've read about their lives so much. You know, it, it will be a re- interesting actually talking to them and not just reading about them. And don't you think it might be a little shocking to them to be raised and then to find out that two or 3,000 years have passed and all these other people have been reading about their lives and know so many things about them? It will really be kind of interesting. Uh, We'll meet Enoch and the other patriarchs who were there at the very beginning. We'll meet Noah, the world's first zookeeper, Uh, you know, at least floating zookeeper. What an amazing story that he will have to tell about that year in, in in the ark. And all the unknown people that we have never heard of, that aren't recorded, but who were faithful. A lot of people to meet. And interesting things to talk about. The Bible says that they are waiting for us and that they will not be perfected without us. In other words, it's going to be the resurrection of all the saints together. Uh, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter chapter 12 and verse one, he says, "Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight." And the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, he's talking about all the people in Hebrews eleven that 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 he, he spoke of: Abel, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Gideon, Rahab, Samuel—all these people of of faith who saw the finish line, who who had the vision of it. And have not yet crossed it, but soon will with us. But in order to do that, we've got we've to get the rocks out of our pockets. You know, it's hard to run uh, carrying extra weight. The worries and the stresses and the sins that so easily beset us. We've got to be able to finish our race. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who gets us across the finish line. He starts us, and He finishes, helps us to finish across the finish line. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, He already crossed His finish line. And He's there to, to, to root for us and cheer us on all the way to ours. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Brethren, as we gather on the Feast of Trumpets, are you weary? Are you worn out? Is your strength starting to flag? Do you feel that this race has gone on and on and on and your legs are tired, your arms are aching, they feel like lead? And sometimes you feel like you can't take another step. He says, don't be weary, don't be discouraged, keep going. Because we're almost there. We're only a few steps away from the finish line. We're on the home stretch. We can see the finish line on the other side of the field, perhaps. We're getting closer and closer to it with every step. You know, not only will we see biblical figures when we cross that finish line, but also our own brethren, the people who were the pioneers in this work in the 30s and 40s and and 50s. Mr. Armstrong, so much of what we do today is because of his work and his faithfulness, and we'll see him again with Mrs. Armstrong and others who've died in the faith. Who are you looking forward to seeing again? Who do you want to be there with? Friends, relatives, brethren. We are almost there, and that's what this day pictures. First Corinthians chapter nine and verse twenty-four. Let's turn turn over there briefly. First Corinthians, chapter nine, and verse twenty-four. Paul said, Do you not know that those who run in a race run all? All run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, in this analogy, Paul is explaining that only the first one who who crosses wins. Uh, That's true of most races, but in our race, our spiritual race, everybody wins if they cross the finish line. It's exciting to think about the people that we will see there what about each other do we also want each other to make it are we helping are we thinking about not only the biblical figures or those who have died in the faith but also each other today are we helping each other to make it are we aware when one of us stumbles and staggers are we watching do we notice when someone isn't let's say at services for a few weeks Do we reach out to them to see if they're okay? Are they sick? Do they have any needs that we can help fill? Do we have close friends that we can rely on and reach out to in times of stress? Because we all have trials and difficulties. We can't run the race for each other. But, you know, we need support, especially when we struggle. A hand Supporting us, keeping us from falling when we need it sure is important. And the relationships with our brethren together really help us. We're going to cross the line together. Let's help each other along as we can. Verse 25, he says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown." Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's saying we've got to keep fighting, we've got to keep moving forward, and we've got to help each other to make it. You know, our change in the resurrection at the last trump does not mean the end of problems on earth. Going back to the story of Revelation, we see the seven last plagues are poured out after the saints are raised to life. From the description of them, they probably only last a few days. Again, as Mr. O'Gwen explains uh, in the booklet about Revelation, uh, they are so disastrous, all life would be wiped out if they lasted more than a few days. And as he points out, they may... Occur? they they seem to happen within within the nine-day period between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement when Satan is bound. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 1, uh, just quickly reviewing some of the the seven last plagues, he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bulls of the wrath of God on the earth. Verse 2, painful sores, on those with the mark of the beast. Verse 3, a second plague, the, the sea becomes blood. Every living creature dies. Uh, verse 4, the third plague, the rivers and springs become blood. Verse 8, the fourth plague, the sun scorches men with fire. Verse 9, the fifth plague, pain and darkness. They're still blaspheming God. Verse 12, the sixth plague, Euphrates is dried up. The armies of the east cross, the armies are gathered Verse 17, the seventh plague. Great hail from heaven falls, and they're still blaspheming God. And so finally, Jesus Christ personally fights against these armies. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we find in verse 11. Verse 11, now I saw heaven open... And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. (coughs) His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the the real Savior, not the pseudo-Savior, who actually brings destruction. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. It's interesting. The saints are put to work right away after the resurrection, after we cross the finish line, assisting Christ in subduing the nations. Verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness, And wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus Christ fights the armies, takes the beast and false prophet captive, casts them into the lake of fire, and of course on the day of atonement, chains and binds Satan the devil. And then of course the the stage is set for the Feast of Tabernacles for the millennium for rebuilding, for renewing, and for restoration. Really an amazing picture we see of the future. You know, do we take this picture for granted? Do we take this amazing picture of the future for granted when many other people do not simply understand this, who who are nominal Christians? They, they are clueless about the Holy Days in general, and the Feast of Trumpets in particular. And yet God has given us an understanding to understand the future, understand what's going to happen, and understand where our race will end. Brethren, we see the finish line, but it's not just for ourselves, is it? We see it for the rest of this world too. We see that God has a hope in store for the world. There is hope There is joy, there is peace, there is something better coming, and this day reminds us of it, gives us a clear picture of it, and gives us the encouragement to keep going, to cross our finish line. I'd like to conclude today with a a poem I'm sure most of you have heard before, seen before. It's called Don't Quit. It was really inspirational to me growing up as a teenager when I first came across it. I'd like to read it as we wrap up today. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns, and every one of us sometimes learns, and many a failure turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup, and he learned too late when the night slipped down, How close he was to the golden crown. How close are we to the finish line? Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Brethren, God has called us to win. On this day of trumpets, let's determine to not let anything stop us, anything stand in our way for ourselves and for each other for crossing the finish line.